You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm here with uh, my co-hosts, Max Linsky, and my other co-host, Evan Ratliff who I did a live show with, doubleheader live show, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff, Zeke Fox from Bloomberg. Evan, uh, tell us a little bit more about the event. A rare long-form live event, uh, even more rare. I don't think we've ever had two interviewers and one subject before. Zeke Fox has a book out, which is called Number Go Up, which is about his investigations into and travels with the strange characters of the cryptocurrency industry over the last few years uh and its ups and downs uh it's a really really fun book and both aaron and i had read it zeke was launching his book we decided to have a live event it was at powerhouse in uh dumbo brooklyn which is right under the uh manhattan bridge basically it's okay the train's only going by about 85 percent of the time uh it makes me feel kind of nostalgic for for our old offices you guys you were in our old uh stomping grounds i almost went to that uh Delhi, where I we, we got salads like seven hundred times, but it uh, the, it was post the salad hour, but it was a great time anyway. It was uh, great to get to meet to some uh, people who listen to the show. It's great to get to meet uh, Zeke, who's reporting. I became familiar with. He, he wrote the story about Tether, uh, which is the stablecoin, several years ago, and, and that's really like the seed of the book is him trying to figure out what's the deal with this sketchy company that makes this Tether stablecoin, and that ends up leading him all over the place. I have to ask you guys a question. You're both, um, you know, you've got a fair amount of knowledge about cryptocurrency. Clearly, Zeke knows a lot about cryptocurrency. Is this, is this interview going to be accessible to people who do not have that level of knowledge? Say myself? Extremely accessible to, to all commerce. As is the book, I, I should add. Um, I'll tell you who else is accessible. The people at Vox. We talk to them all the time because we make this show with them. Thanks very much to them. Now here's Aaron and Evan with Z Fox. Hello, everyone. Welcome. We're very excited that you're all here. This is a great crowd. My name is Evan Ratliff. I am one of the hosts of the Longform Podcast. This is Aaron Lambert. I'm also one of the hosts of the Longform Podcast. And I believe you probably all know Zeke Fox. Hey, everybody. 
so we're here for the uh, launch and uh, celebration of Number Go Up. And this is also being recorded for the Long Form Podcast. Now, normally, only one host would interview uh, an author or writer on our show. In this case, Aaron and I were fighting over this book. Uh, who was going to get a chance to talk to him? Partly because we've never had Zeke on the show. He has done many, many pieces for Bloomberg Business Week that we wanted to talk about. And we waited until this book came out because we mostly wanted to talk about the book. Uh, so we decided to both be questioners of him today. So um, if you haven't read the book yet, if you're just getting a copy today, you are in for an enormous treat with this book. So should I kick it off? You want to kick it off? I just want to say as a preamble, I did not know that your name was pronounced Fox until right now. And for about three years, I thought you were like an, like a super Anon who wasn't revealing his own identity. <laughs> And had come up with like the like a really great um, fake name, so uh, it's lovely. To, it's lovely to meet you, Zeke. Nice to meet you too. I could have had so much credit in crypto world. That, that shows you the brain virus that I was operating <laughs> under the time that I was like, oh, it's so cool. He never revealed his real identity. <laughs> so let's start. If you don't know, Zeke is a longtime investigative reporter for Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. He has done stories about fraudsters, scammers, thieves. Uh, some of my favorite types of stories over the years. And I was wondering, do you remember your first kind of story about crooks and what kind of like drew you to it? I always like, I came up through traditional reporting and I had like what I found to be like kind of boring assignments to cover Wall Street. And I was always drawn to like people who worked in gray areas. Um, and there was a moment when I realized like this was something that I could pursue as sort of like my beat. I had done um, an expose of, I don't know, some shady business. And there was a guy who was in the story. I'd written some not very nice things about his company. And when the story came out, he was like, hey, you want to go out for a drink? And I was like, I had also gotten a call from the US Postal Inspection Service, which I think, I mean, that's like, they can arrest you, it's something, and they were like, hey, we read your story, we're, just so you know, like, we wanna like arrest these guys. And I, so I was like, hmm, this is a really interesting combination of calls today. Um, and I was like, uh, what's going on? I, you know, now with this sort of thing, it's become more routine, but I was kind of, I was like younger, I was kind of worried. I was like, all right, well, I'll, I'll go out for the drink. And I met the guy and he was like, you know, you did a pretty good job with that story. And like, let me tell you about this shady hedge fund and like how they took money from Harvard and like secretly invested it in payday lending without telling Harvard. And I was like, wow, this is like a really great tip. Thank you guy that I just wrote mean things about. Um, and like, I felt like I was off and running. <laughs> Over the course of these stories, did you develop any kind of unified theory of scammers and fraudsters? Ooh. Um, one thing I noticed is that they are not always that creative. Like, these guys all watch, like, The Wolf of Wall Street, like, Boiler Room. <laughs> like, they're, uh, there's one guy I wrote about had even, like, he'd studied... Uh, Oh, he'd study these films to try and figure out how he should act as like a scammer. 
So this can be a little bit frustrating because when I'm writing like a feature story, I don't want it to like totally fall into these tropes of like these scam movies and stories that we've heard before. So I'm always looking for somebody who's got like, who's done it differently somehow. <laughs> but there, there is a bit of a feedback loop. I mean, isn't that sort of true with the mafia now that like the mafia is so influenced by movies about the mafia that it's dramatically changed the actual way that the mafia sort of operates aesthetically? Yeah, I mean, that totally, I think you're right. I mean, they probably know more about the mafia tactics from like rewatching Goodfellas than, I mean, they're, grandfather probably was in jail their whole life they didn't get to like tell him their <laughs> mafia secrets so at the early part of this book you set off to investigate tether can you give uh like i'm gonna give a max 30 seconds but what is tether and what were you like looking to find out at the very very origins of your reporting so i'd resisted investigating crypto I just thought that like it didn't have the same kind of cool, complicated scamminess that I could untangle and write about. But Tether was a mystery that appealed to me. It's called a stable coin because it's a coin that you give the company Tether a dollar and they give you one Tether token. And so you can sort of think of them like casino chips that you take and gamble with elsewhere in crypto land. And when I went to start looking into it, Tether had sold $50 billion worth of these chips, and they had not said to anyone's satisfaction where they were keeping that $50 billion. So there was this fear that if people went to cash in their Tether chips, the $50 billion would be gone and the entire crypto economy would crash. So I felt like this was the kind of thing I could work on trying to find this like missing money. And that was a mystery that like sucked me into crypto world for two years. And when you start, I mean, if this was a, a bank, a proper bank, they would have a PR firm, you know who to call up, you know who works at the bank. Like, where do you start when you enter into this world? Yeah, Tether was just like, compared to a traditional financial company in crypto world, there were just so many red flags, it was laughable. Like the company wasn't really based anywhere. They'd suggested they were regulated by the British Virgin Islands. But then when I called the regulator there, they're like, no. Um, the, the CEO had not only never given an interview, he was, um, had never really been seen in public. And some people speculated that he didn't even really exist. Um, and the guy that I was told was the real boss was the CFO, Giancarlo Divasini, who was a former plastic surgeon from Milan, who then had become like an electronics importer and had been sued for counterfeiting. Um, so even, even as I was learning all this weird stuff about Tether, I was constantly being told by people in crypto that this was super important. It was central to the crypto economy. And yeah, I just couldn't believe that like crypto traders really trusted this company. It seems like you set off on a journey that you thought would have like a simple resolution. And then it just got like more and more complicated in terms of like what you were looking for, because it seems like you were able to figure out fairly rapidly um, that this was like a very sketchy company that was like telling lies, but it didn't lead to like a neat, simple resolution. Like, oh, like now that people know that they certainly won't keep their money in there. Right. Like in traditional finance land, like when you do an expose of a mainstream finance company, you don't usually have like conclusive proof that they're a fraud. Like the story, if you go back and look at the stories that exposed Enron, 
they were just sort of like, hey, you might want to look at this like weird financial maneuver they're using. So with Tether, you definitely had that already. And anyone who invested in Tether tokens had reason enough to sell them to try and get their money out. But in the crypto world, it just didn't seem like anybody cared. So how did you go about sort of uh, attacking the reporting? So you end up at, at these conferences, these crypto conferences, and from what it sounds like, you're, you, there's sort of a, an overwhelming number of kind of ridiculous seeming people at these conferences. And how did you go about finding the threads that you were gonna pull in order to keep following the story? So I went to, Aaron, were you at uh, Bitcoin 2021 in Miami? I was not. Okay. In, so, in fact, I, I described this like uh, to Evan in a text message is like, uh, if you were like writing about pop music and you like went to the, like the parking lot of like an insane clown posse show, <laughs> it's like not the most like flattering way. So, okay. So I, I've totally heard that before. And this was like a really crazy conference full of Bitcoin zealots. But I also feel a little bit like, okay, with like superhero movies, people are always like, oh, you got to see Ant-Man. This is the good one. It's not like the other superhero movies. And then you see it and you're like, oh, great, another one. And so like with the crypto conferences, I, everyone was like, oh, you didn't go to the intellectual one. Like that's why it's like, uh, but you're definitely right. Like this Bitcoin 2021 conference I had this kind of, even though I was skeptical of crypto, I had this like impression that it was about to go mainstream and that there were like major players on Wall Street who were looking to get involved, which was kind of true. But then, yeah, you get there and it's like all these kind of gold bugs who are talking about like evils of fiat money and like central bankers and how they're ruining the world. Uh, There's a guy giving a speech who had said that uh, he called grain fiat food and he thought that like together with only owning Bitcoin, like we should only eat steaks. Then he wasn't even the only one with that, that theory. Um, and so at this conference, but like that's not necessarily a good target for investigation, just like some weirdo. So I set up all these meetings. I was kind of like poorly informed. I didn't have time to research everybody because I just was basically there to ask them about Tether, but I had to feign interest in their company. And I, one of the ones that uh, I met with, his name was Alex Mashinsky. He ran this company called Celsius. And when I sat down with him, he was like, uh, he's real like hype man. He's got this shirt that says banks are not your friends. He was all over the conference. Like he seemed like he was clearly like, it was clear he was a big player. He tells me his pitch. He's like, give me your money. I'll pay you like 18% interest. But if you want a loan from me, I charge 0%. And like, that's like a recipe to to lose money. It doesn't make any sense at all. And I'm like, but I'm just sort of smiling because I don't want to, I want to say anything rude before we get to Tether. And so I'm like, okay, that's cool. How much money do you manage? And he's like, $20 billion. And then uh, he got arrested a few weeks ago, um, if you don't follow these things closely. But yeah, so when I got back from the conference, I told, uh, I told my editor, I was just like, we could do this crypto stuff. Like, like, if you don't mind that I write about crypto, there's like a lot of things we could write about. <laughs> Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. 
Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. One of the interesting dynamics in the book is that, I mean, you're clearly skeptical of many of the boosters of cryptocurrency, but also the skeptics are not necessarily trustworthy people. Like you meet this guy, Bitfinex, who is like on this longstanding crusade against Tether that um, the information he's giving is not totally verifiable either. How did you sort of like know who to trust? How do you think about like, Who's a worthwhile source that I can actually use what they say in this book? That was definitely a real challenge. Like this Bitfinex guy, he's just an anonymous account on Twitter, but surprisingly influential. He would tweet all these things about like Tether's not back. They don't have the money. Where's the money? And like he had the ear of like financial regulators. Like I heard people really listen to him. And so when we met and I agreed to like protect his identity, I don't know what I expected, but I think I was thinking more like, uh, like he was some sort of insider and he walks in with like, you know, his shirts like stained with tacos. And like, he, uh, he had some, like, he gave me some swag. Um, and, uh, he, yeah, I realized like he didn't really know anything. Like he might be right, but he's just, uh, posting a bunch of like crazy stuff online and yeah, it's on me to, to try and figure things out. So and, but it, it was very, with Tether especially, it was very hard. Like, even when I got some financial records showing, like, what they had invested in, I'm just like, I don't know, could this be made up? Like, how do you actually know anything? And, yeah, it, it, was, a real, it was a real challenge. <laughs> well, there's sort of, um, it feels like there's two challenges in there. One is the reporting challenge, collecting the information, trying to get to the bottom of those mysteries. And the other one is this psychological challenge that I wanted to ask you about, which is, I mean, you pitch the book and you start working on the book when crypto is like at its height, you know, Bitcoin is hitting whatever, 60 plus thousand or whatever the limit was that it hit. And so as you were doing it and you just you talk about this a little bit in the book, how did it feel to kind of anticipate that your skepticism might not pay off? Yeah. So when I when I pitched it November 2021 and in the pitch, I was like, more or less like it's a house of cards, it's all going to collapse, which wasn't like that controversial of you at the time. And like more or less it did happen, but it definitely didn't feel that way. Like you're saying, like immediately I'm very nervous. I'm seeing like the price is not collapsing. I'm like, what am I going to write about in this book? What's going to happen? And by the time now it was only five months later, but by the time I got to April, 2022, when prices had dropped a little bit, but not too much, 
I was at Sam Bankman Freed's big conference in the Bahamas and I was feeling kind of depressed. I was just like, I don't know. I guess like this is how the world's gonna be. Like you can, you got some like dumb crypto company and your coin, you can raise, you know, a billion dollars and like, well, I don't know, maybe they will just raise the money and figure it out later. Yeah, I mean, there's like the uh, title number go up could be like read like literally or ironically, depending on where we were in the market cycle. I think it's coming out at like a very good time, but I was somewhat surprised, like particularly like reading the blurbs on the back of the book. They're very much like, yeah, it's over. And I was like, I, I don't know, there's probably going to be like a sequel to this book. Like what has happened like since then? Like um, I know that like the trial, the Sam Bankman free trial starts, I think a few blocks away from here in uh, I think three weeks. Like how are you feeling about the like aftermath of what you wrote about? So that's how I definitely feel like I think uh, I saw Amazon filed it in history. And I'm like, <laughs> I think that's, uh, I think that's appropriate. Um, but um, I can't imagine we'll ever see like another bubble like, like this one. And I don't think that the outcome of Sam's trial is in like too much suspense. And yeah, maybe some crypto thing will happen in the future, but I think it will be different from the one that if it does, it won't be the same stuff that I wrote about. Well, that I mean, that's something I wanted to ask about as well. Like in the book, there are there's like the idea of crypto and the associated ideas like smart contracts and, you know, everything that kind of circles around it. And then there are the people that it has attracted all variety of Ponzi schemers and scammers that you describe. And is it possible to separate the idea in your mind from the people? Or was it inevitable that this idea would attract these people? So for me, it's very, at this point, it's very hard to separate. And I can only really judge crypto by what I saw, which was bad. Um, but I also know that, like, I can see that the ideas have a lot of appeal and like a lot of smart people have worked on them. But the question I would just come back to when I was talking to these guys, and it's something that like, as a writer, like you want to see stuff that's happening so you can write about it. And so I would be like, hey, you've, you've got this company, you, you say that you've raised $200 million by sell, selling spaceship NFT, NFTs, can maybe we can like play the game together, it'll be like a better scene. And then the guy's like, oh, no, no, no. Like the NFTs exist, we have the $200 million, but like the game's five years away. Like we cannot play the game. And I just felt like I was always pulling back the curtain and was like very disappointed by what I saw. So at this point, it's hard for me to like really get excited about the, about the ideas. What was your thinking about like how much explanation needed to be in this book versus like the more fun, fraudy parts? So definitely my thinking was like as little as you can get away with. Like do not explain anything if you don't need to. And definitely not right at the beginning, because that's going to be that's going to turn people off. Um, was that something you had to like calibrate through people reading it and being like, "This part is extremely boring." Um, I mean, I'm to be fair, like I'm very easily bored too. So <laughs> I, I didn't need anyone to tell me like which that writing about blockchain would be would be boring. Also, um, I have a colleague at Bloomberg, Matt Levine who writes about these concepts like way better than I ever would. So I was like, I'm not trying to, to match that. I'm going to write about like these characters and this, what happened in this boom. 
On the way here, I was listening to the Rewatchables podcast about the movie Black Hat. And I was sort of thinking about how this whole era of like computer bank robberies is like extremely uncinematic and very difficult to like adapt or make exciting. And I feel like your book is pretty exciting. Like, where did you find the parts of the story that were exciting or were sort of captivating? Where are the scenes in a mostly computer story? Yeah, I mean, that was certainly like when I pitched the book, that was certainly my goal was like, you need to find some interesting stuff going on that you can write about. And there's only so much that can be about like different crypto conferences that you attended. Um, those <laughs> well, actually- those You were, went to the right one for the scenes. <laughs> you weren't going to top that one. Um, so one thing that I write about in the book is I heard about, uh, you hear about crypto being used for like illicit purposes. And that's also kind of hard to dramatize because like it's unlikely that some, you know, money launderer is going to invite you over while he, you know, does his thing. What I heard about these romance scams, it's called pig butchering, where we all get these like random spam text messages. And it turns out like those people are trying to entice you into crypto scams. And then very dark twist, it turns out that the people sending those messages are often themselves victims of human trafficking who are like in Cambodia being tortured while they send you the spam text messages. So when I heard about this, it was not like, I wasn't the first one to hear about it, but understandably other people who covered this were more interested in like the human rights issues. And I was like, wait, did I hear that you use crypto for all these scams? And like, then I got one of these spam text messages and played along with this scammer who said their name was Vicky Ho. And then finally she was like, all right, you wanna, you wanna learn to trade like me? Send me some tether. And I was like, great, yes, I will send you some tether and the, maybe I can track your wallet. And then it, it, I end up going to, I was not able to find Vicky Ho, but ended up going to Cambodia to just because I wanted to see these crazy scam compounds for myself. And in there, I actually, did visit like a money exchange store where I saw a dude just like walk out with a brick of 50 grand and I was able to send hundred tethers to the clerk and walk out with like a hundred dollar bill, no questions asked. And that's when I thought, oh, now I finally see this. This is, this was pretty useful. Maybe, maybe crypto is good for something. So was that really the only scam you engaged with? I was wondering if you were like keeping like 20 of them running at once to see if one of them would finally mention tether. Oh, no, that was the only one. And I, honestly, they always use Tether. There's not really a particularly good reason why they all use Tether. I think it's mostly because uh, as a victim, if you're asked to buy like Bitcoin or something, you might be worried that the price would go up or down. Whereas with Tether, the scammer can say, hey, it's always worth a dollar. And then you send it to me and we'll earn like 30% interest or something. So I, I don't think it's necessarily anything more than that why they use tether well you you kind of get into like a to me as a person who uh, admittedly has the crypto brain virus an interesting distinction which is that there are other less sketchy stable coins there's one that's issued by a you know well-known american company that's regulated by the government called circle and yet this like extremely sketchy not backed one succeeds but you can kind of see why that might be true if you were doing something where you didn't want to have your funds 
frozen by some sort of law enforcement uh, action of some kind. Definitely. And I did, from a victim of one of these pig butchering scams, they sent some of their, they showed me some of their communications with Tether's customer service. And they were like, yeah, I sent, I sent in like 20 grand and it turns out it was to like some Chinese gangster and like, can you freeze their account? Because Tether does have that power, like they've done it in the past. And then Tether was, it's just, it was funny to see their series of excuses that were just very arbitrary, clearly just made up by some customer service worker. And they're like, we only freeze accounts if you have proof of violence. And I was like, in the banking system, like if, uh, you know, banks follow all sorts of rules and like Tether and other crypto companies purport to follow the rules, but then seem to just like make them up whichever ones they want to follow. Well, and there's also some distinctions there about like, you know, the rule of law across countries where, yes, you can like freeze an American bank account, but like many, much of the stuff's happening across international borders. Um, I don't know if they're legitimate, but there's, it's sort of powerful to have like a, a truly unfreezable money, even if it, it's not backed by anything. Yeah. Like maybe I'm, I'm kind of like a boring guy, but I, I'm like, <laughs> you know, there's a reason why the banks have to like know who has which account. And I, I think there's a reason for all these financial regulations. And I, I feel like the crypto world is kind of like learning it all over again. Yeah, I mean, someone has described to me as like uh, crypto, like speed running, like 100 years of like bad financial decisions in like two years, uh, probably something to that. Yeah, definitely. I, I To me, it just seems like so much of it boils down to like some guy has some idea, he gets you to send in your real money, and then he gives you some like random token, and then now he has the money and goes and like blows it on something else. I want to talk about the writing for a second because I found the, the writing in the book so fun and so kind of refreshing in its, I guess, bluntness is maybe the way I would describe it. Like you call a scam a scam, you call a con man a con man. And that's not always true in the sort of journalistic outlets where things are maybe a little heavily lawyered. People try to be careful. And you say things like, uh, it's not just that the idea was stupid, but, and go on. And I'm wondering if that was like, was that like first draft energy or was that like revision energy? Oh, well, this was really big for me. It was like one of the appeals of writing a book is that I'm usually held to this, like have to write it under these constraints because I've worked for Bloomberg and even though Business Week can be like a little bit edgier, there's just like a house style. And I, I feel like crypto is not, is not made for that. Like there's not time to investigate all of these scams. Sometimes you just have to see something. And maybe it's not a scam. Maybe it's just like some, you know, hype that's worth, some worthless hype. You just need to see it and like say what you think about it. And I also like a lot of crypto is built around being cool. Like people have made so much money off just like convincing other people that they're cool. And sometimes like the expose is just like they're not cool. Like <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, there's an underlying question in the book. There's like, um, there's sort of like big fraud in the um, like Sam Bankman Freed gambled with other people's money sense. And then there's this kind of larger question about whether we should stop people from gambling overall, like whether uh, we should move towards a society where there's more gambling on everything. And you can see this like way outside of crypto too, like 
I don't know if you watch any sports, you're pretty much supporting like a sports gambling industrial industry now. I'm interested in how you thought about sort of that second question, which is like the creation of a larger and larger like gambling infrastructure in the world. And, and, and you know, as someone who covers markets as a whole, how you would connect that to like your previous life and Wall Street and traditional finance, which is just kind of a different gambling marketplace. So, I mean, I can see the appeal of gambling. Like when I was younger, I, I liked gambling. Um, but I feel like when I'm writing about finance, I want to tell people the truth about what what's likely to go on. And like, I don't think, um, it just sort of gets to like this, uh, the argument that kicks off the book. I'm arguing with my my friend about Dogecoin and he's just like, buy this doggy coin, it's gonna go higher. You know, doggy coins pumping. And I'm like, you know, it's called Dogecoin. It's dumb. <laughs> like, it's, a, it's it, the joke's played out. It's not funny. And, and it did go up and he did make money. But I think I'm always going to be the one who's like the stick in the mud that's like, hey, like day trading is uh, like it's a proven loser. And like gambling is a way to lose money. And, you know, if you buy a board eight for $500,000, there, it will not stay cool for that long, and soon it will be worth like fifty thousand dollars or zero. So, <laughs> did you ever have like that? Like the operative one in there that was interesting to me is like the likely, because the likely sort of turns you into a predictor of the future. And the book is in some ways about how the the future is really hard to predict. Like at one point, I think you said like I could have thrown a dart at a dartboard and hit a company that was going to be go belly up and yet tether somehow is still like kicking at the end like how did you think about like the oracle elements of the book particularly not knowing what the world would look like right when it came out i mean as a like long form reporter you do sort of have to like make bets about like which characters are going to be important like who's worth spending all this time with who's worth like cultivating and trying to get access to. So somebody like Sam Bakeman Freed, like I could tell that he was an important character and that regardless of what happened, he'd be a good one to hang out with. And that he probably knew something about Tether that sadly he did not tell me. Um, <laughs> so even when I learned that um, the first time I flew down to the Bahamas to hang out with him, he was very, like I was sitting with him, I could see everything on his computer. He's like emailing with, CEOs, he's got his calendar up there. And I could see that he had just been with uh, Michael Lewis. And I was like, oh, hope that guy's not writing a book about crypto too. <laughs> um, and, uh, but I was like, you know what? Like, whatever, I, I'm, my book's different. And I can tell, even if this guy's spending a lot of time with Michael Lewis, I think he's an important character and that he is gonna play a role in like whatever happens in crypto and I should be spending time with him too. So I tried to make my plans so they were flexible so that I would still have a book, like, no matter what happened. And can you describe the, the emotions that you went through when, and what you did when FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried's company started to collapse? So when FTX, like, certainly cannot claim that I predicted that Sam Bankman-Fried was running, like, a big fraud or that his company would collapse... And when it did, I was like a little unsure of like whether I should be writing about this or how, I mean, it seems really obvious now, but um, 
I really like hemmed and hawed a lot, talked with my colleagues. And then uh, I got a text message from somebody that was like, you in the Bahamas right now? And I was like, think to myself, no, I, I guess I should be. So then, uh, then I flew down there and arranged to go to Sam's apartment. And he's, you know, holed up at his $30 million penthouse. And like, to me, it's, he hadn't been arrested yet. You know, it was, there was some question about like what had happened. To me, it seemed really clear there was a big fraud and that it was a matter of time before, uh, before he would not be available for more interviews, which, which proved wrong. Uh, um, another bad prediction. He did apparently 1,000 interviews from house arrest. Um, but that was in court papers. Um, but uh, yeah, once I, I decided to go visit with him and see if he had some side of the story to tell and if there was something different from like the narrative that was out there. And it turned out to be like really interesting to spend time with him when things were, you know, at the end after having seen him when, you know, he seemed like the next Mark Zuckerberg or something. What did you, what did you make of the fact that he was, I mean, before you knew that he did 1,000 other interviews later, the fact that he was willing to talk to you? Like, what was your interpretation of what he was thinking? So my take is that I don't think, like, we didn't have some, like, special relationship, but I felt like he was so successful with the media on the way up. Like, he was able to get himself on magazine covers and make himself into crypto's golden boy by being really accessible. And he had this story to tell that people really liked. And so when the company collapsed, I don't think it was crazy for him to think like, I don't know, maybe I can talk my way out of this one too. Like, let's talk to the reporters. And he ended up going on this big uh, apology tour and going on uh, Good Morning America and uh, zooming into the DealBook conference and saying a lot of the same stuff that he had said to me. I think he may have like had me over for practice, like honestly. <laughs> the show is sort of about some of the nuts and bolts of, of doing this kind of work. And so I'm sort of asking for maybe future stories that people end up with like this, where you have a ton of people obviously pushing the story and it appears that Sam Bankman-Fried was talking to all of them at once. Like, how do you try to stand out in a situation like that? And, and like, how did it change the calculus of what you were doing, knowing that there was like seven other writers trying to write exactly the same story on varying publishing deadlines? So with that particular story, I decided that, first of all, I, I was on, my book leave had started, but I was like, I knew Business Week would like this story. I got to bring this back for Business Week and we got to publish it. Uh, we got to publish it quick. And that was one where, like what Evan was saying, I thought that I could I distinguish myself because I'm like, I, you've spent a long time thinking about crypto. You know what you think about this. You know what you think happened. And you can say it. And I was able to press Sam. And I also was able to, I just wrote in the story things like he said this, but it didn't seem very believable for this reason. And, and I felt like that was not unfair because sitting with Sam, I would also tell him that. I was like, what you just said, that, make, that doesn't make sense to me. Or like, I don't think it's true for this reason. So I think that, um, yeah, I knew that my story would be different because I, a lot of the other people who jumped into the story were not like that well equipped to interrogate his responses. Uh, and also because I was on book leave, I was able to just go and talk my way into his house and I didn't have to like make any proposals or anything. 
this is a weird question, but like, what's it like reporting on someone who's like in like such a deep crisis that they're like, um, you know, almost having like a, some form of like a public breakdown in front of you? So I really, we didn't communicate that much leading up to the interview. So when like I walked in, I really had no idea what to expect. I wasn't sure if he'd be all alone. Like I wasn't sure if he'd be like utterly despondent. And when I met him, he was really, I mean, I'm sure he was keeping up a brave face, but he seemed like exactly the same guy that I had met, you know, six months earlier when he was like one of the richest guys in the world and the hero of crypto. So that, that's what surprised me. He seemed like, he seemed really unfazed. And I don't know if he was maybe a little delusional at that point that he was going to raise $10 billion and bail himself out. But I will say, I felt like it was a really sad situation. And like, regardless about what I thought of what Sam did, I was just like, I mean, the interview went on forever. And well, I called it. I was like, I'm really tired. And then uh, the... Because he's got all the good study drugs. Um, so, Can I get one of those patches real yeah. quick? Um, but uh, no, when I got out of there, I was just like, wow, I'm really looking forward to going back to Brooklyn and being with like my normal, my wife and like my awesome kids and like my normal life. And like, I'm glad this isn't my life. <laughs> Speaking of getting back to your wife and awesome kids, you, you did a lot of traveling for this book. You were all over the world for this. And you also describe in a way that I really appreciate as a reporter, flying somewhere and then just getting the door closed in your face. And I'm wondering how you went about deciding where to go after the door had been closed in your face many times. Um, I mean, some people were really generous hosts, like, uh, I was surprised often by uh, the people that I met that would just like let me in and, and talk to me. And I feel like I've never, um, I've never been sad that like I went anywhere. It also, maybe that pressure to like figure out something to do really like helps you come up with something. And I also worked with, um, in most of the countries that I went, I worked with like really amazing reporters who had either covered the topic before or have been like working researching it for me and we're like pretty re prepared. So that enabled me to do it a lot faster than otherwise. Like, I don't even have time to credit all of them, but when I went to the Philippines, um, I was working with uh, Gil Ramos, who is like a veteran fixer. And she was just like, all right, welcome to the Philippines. There had been this big crypto bubble there in this sort of Pokemon-ish game. And she was just like, let's go to Cabanatuan City and we're gonna track down the first guy who played this game. And like, then we did. And I don't even like, uh, like I don't speak Tagalog. So like, that was all her. And yeah, we were able to, so some of these places I didn't, uh, I was able to do it like quicker than I might have imagined. How did you think about like weaving all the different threads together to make a coherent book? Because there's like, there's the major tether arc, there's the FTX SBF arc, and then there's all these ways that their actions sort of influenced normal people's lives all over the world. It's a pretty sprawling story. Like, I don't know, like uh, if it was a movie, it would be like one of those like Syriana kind of movies where you're seeing it from all the different angles. H how did you turn that into a single narrative? That was like possibly the biggest challenge and like the thing that I worked the hardest at on the, in the writing process. And my 
editor Paul Whitlatch at Crown, like on some that was one of his main comments when I turned in drafts was like, we need to like why is the narrator going from this place to that place? Like what is uh what does this chapter have to do with that chapter? And I'm pretty proud of like how it turned out. I think it like reads like a real story. But that was like I was like, worst case we have like a collection of entertaining essays. Best case, this is like a, a really good story. And that that was the goal that I was working on like throughout all the writing and revising. And the overarching mystery that started it all, are you still trying to solve that mystery? Do you um, feel like there's still a mystery there? Honestly, yes. And I felt like by on this trip to Cambodia, when I saw Tether being used, um, like one of, I, I rarely saw crypto used in the real world. And I'd never seen Tether for sure. I'd never seen it at, used anywhere. Even at these Bitcoin conferences, a lot of times if you tried to pay with Bitcoin for like your beer, they'd be like, machine's down. So uh, the I get to, I'm on a bus from Ho Chi Minh City. I cross the border into Cambodia. I'm in this town where notorious for forced labor and like scam compounds in the parking lot of one of these scam casinos where supposedly like lots of workers are being held against their will. There's like a little booth that's like trade your tether for dollars. And I'm just like, this is, this is the nice part about it being a book and not like a New York Times article. Like to me, that's like a very meaning, like that doesn't prove anything. But to me, I'm like, wow, I've been looking at this for two years. And this is where I find like the first time I see the Tether logo in the real world. Like I felt like I had gotten to some sort of answer, but definitely, yeah, like so spoiler alert, like Tether hasn't crashed. It's it's bigger than it's bigger than ever. And the company is making, if you believe their numbers, they're making tons of money. Plastic Surgeon and all the other top people are are billionaires and they now it's because interest rates have gone up and they can invest in safe US treasuries and earn big returns. And like, I still have my doubts about the whole company, but like, I don't know, I've looked into it for a long time. I didn't find like evidence that they were lying about their assets now. And like, I don't know, we'll see what happens. Like I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not convinced the story's over, but I can't, yeah, I can't control what happens. And I've had to call it turn in my book. Yeah. Yeah. I was just sort of curious, like, I mean, you start sort of with the smoke around Tether and as you said, it, it hasn't collapsed. It's bigger than ever. And you know, basically how much like the individual personalities of these people, of these people behind these companies matter. Like the fact that these guys all had these colorful, slightly scammy pasts, like how much, of what you're doing is reading into the people versus sort of like finding out things about the business and, and, and what you think looking back sort of from what you knew about these people at the beginning going up till now. Yeah. I mean, I have sort of like a rule of thumb, which is that if somebody did like one scam, they probably did another scam. And like, if, like if they did one scam in the past and now they have a new thing, like the odds are good. It's also a scam. Like it's not always true, but uh, that was definitely like borne out sometimes in crypto world, like with uh, Celsius and Alex Mashinsky, who had like this really insane past and said all sorts of crazy things. But then, uh, yeah, I don't know. It wasn't always. And I, I, partly it's because of the crypto traders react to this differently. And they aren't like if you if they hear like 
oh, uh, such and such protocol, like the founder was associated with the exchange Quadriga, which failed. Like they won't necessarily just dump all their tokens and go put their money at JP Morgan. They might even be like, well, it's kind of cool. Like he's, uh, you know, he's- He's ambitious. Yeah. So the, yeah, the normal rules didn't quite apply for a while there. Um, I'll do one more and then we can do some um, audience questions if there are some. But have you heard, I mean, there's people you describe uh, in very colorful ways in the book, thinking about Brock Pierce, for example. Brock Pierce is his name? Yes. Um, have you heard from any of these people about the way that they are described in the book? Some of the people have read it and I haven't, um, Some, but definitely there's a lot of people I haven't heard from where I'm, I'm certainly like curious what they think. And like, I'm, I'm not like a heartless person. Like I really care what, I feel like when I go write the book, my duty is to the reader. I have to write what I think. I have to tell them what's really going on. And I can't worry too much about what the people involved will, will think about it. Um, but then when writing's over, I'm back to being like, I'm a person and I do care what they think. And Brock, someone he's like one of the most colorful characters in this whole world. And I think he like, uh, enjoys being a colorful character and getting attention. So I'm not sure that he'll like it, but I, he's not one who I think will, uh, sometimes some of these guys like to be in the mix and to be thought of as like an important player, even if, uh, I'm saying that they dressed in Johnny Depp cosplay. <laughs> Maybe you should describe him just a little bit because it'll give a good flavor of the kind of character you'll find in this book. So I'm in the Bahamas and my friend is like, I was at this party last night. It was on this yacht. It was crazy. Like everybody was so drunk. And then like people are doing billion dollar deals over there. People are doing shots over there. And like she pulls out her phone. She's like, check out these videos. And she shows me one. It's this guy with long hair and a scorpion tattoo on his shoulder. And he's, it's, I know him from pictures. It's Brock Pierce, who's like one of the founders of Tether, who I've been wanting to spend time with. And so uh, I had his contact information. I'm like, hey, Brock, can I come to your yacht, which was like moored like a mile offshore? It's like a really big, I don't know, like a 300 foot yacht or something. And he's like, okay. And he sends a speedboat to pick me up. It was really dramatic. He's, he used to be a, uh, one of the stars. He's, he's in the Mighty Ducks. He's a, he was a successful child actor. So like he knows, he knows from drama. And I'm on the yacht and I see him. He's addressing this like small crowd of people who seem kind of confused. He's like, he's about 5'5". Five, five. He's wearing a long leather vest, no shirt. He's got um, diamond shaped pink sunglasses. He always wears like a fedora with uh, like playing cards in it or feathers. He's got like all sorts of flair and he talks in like, uh, he talks in total riddles. Like when I asked him, you know, why did you create Tether? He was like, I'm a doula for creation. I only take on missions impossible. And the, the funny thing is uh, like, he's, um, you know, he, he, he likes this. Like he likes talking to reporters and saying stuff like this. And I, I he was one of the characters in my, I wrote a, a business week story about Tether before the book. And afterwards I had a meeting with like a documentary producer and they were like, Oh, we're kind of interested in like making a documentary about crypto. Nothing came of it, but they're like, really like our favorite part is this, uh, 
the guy who said doula for creation, do you think he'd talk to us? And I'm like, there's no way he'll talk. Definitely not, like, unless you hire me. Like, <laughs> there's, there's only one way he'll get to Brock Pierce, and that's through Zeke Fox. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's just like, he travels with a videographer just because, like, there's not enough cameras around. <laughs> um, all right, do we have any audience questions? I think I'm going to have to, here, you hold this mic. I think I have to deliver this mic. Hi, uh, I've got a question on the VC side of things. So you have firms like A16Z investing in Axie Infinity, Board Apes, Immutable X, et cetera, at multi-billion dollar valuations, in some cases like a few months before it crashes 98%. Uh, do you have any sort of insider knowledge on the terms they're getting these tokens under and whether or not you know, they're still turning a profit even after it completely implodes? That's like, that's a really good question. And if if my book deadline had been like another year that I definitely wanted that to be a chapter because your description of this is accurate. Yeah, so many of these crazy ideas got backed with like tons of money from venture capitalists, especially Andreessen Horowitz. Um, one clue is that like these tokens that regular people buy, as you said, have gone down a lot, but um, Based on a report in the publication, The Information, the returns of Andreessen Horowitz's crypto fund are quite good. So like, that seems like a good clue that the smart money is not just buying like the same things that crypto people are buying. They must be getting in earlier or getting some sort of like good terms. So um, that issue of the sort of ongoing nature, like if I had another, if I had another month, if I had another chapter, are you sick of reporting on? Yeah, obviously you're gonna to have to talk about crypto a lot now for the next coming months. But uh, at what level are you ready to continue reporting on this, or you're you're like uh, I've had, I've seen enough. I mean, I'm definitely like ready to move on now, but I feel sad about the things that like I saw so much, but I do the thing I regret is like the things I didn't see. You know, like I'm always like, was there some better crypto party that I did not go to that, that maybe Aaron went to. Um, yes. <laughs> and uh, like I wasn't there on the day that El Salvador announced, adopted Bitcoin as an official currency when Brock threw a big party and Jake Paul was there, but there were like protests in the street where protesters were like burning like Bitcoin ATMs. And I'm like, you know, it had occurred to me that like maybe I should go that day, but like, I have like a job, like I have kids, like not able to always just like drop things at a moment's notice because there might be something going on. Um, but I did feel like when I got this, this is my first book, like when I got this book deal, I was like, I really want to go all out and to like do everything I can to make this a book, great book and to find out as much as I can. Um, so I feel like I'm proud of how much I did do, but I, yeah, kick myself I didn't do more while the bubble is still going. You know, now I feel like, yeah, I do feel like the story's over and I, I don't feel like there's, a, I'm not waiting for like the next crypto cycle to get going. What was the most like surprising thing? Like go, going in sort of with the attitude that you started with, what like, what surprised you? What was not what you expected? So, I mean, I write in the book, like this is probably not what you were looking for, but I'm like, I went in, Think he was pretty dumb, but like I never could have guessed like the depths of its stupidity. Um, <laughs> and like I do kind of feel I do feel that way. But yeah, I think I was surprised that, you know, like some of this stuff does seem 
like Axie Infinity, this was like the Pokemon-ish game that became kind of like a crypto bubble. And it was especially popular in the Philippines. And crypto people had like really just talked about how great this was going to be. This was like, this was like their shining example of Web3. And like, I went there and I'm like, my cab driver had like borrowed lots of money and lost it on uh, buying these crypto Pokemon. And like, this was really bad for like his life. And yeah, I didn't really expect that. Like, I wasn't thinking, I don't know. I mean, I was expecting more of like the, when I met people who had like lost their savings on crypto, that wasn't that surprising. But to see that effect on people around the world surprised me. And I was also surprised by the ability of crypto people to just like memory hole anything bad that happened. And just like, we, you would hear about stuff and you'd hear about it and then like it would fail. And that was just like, as if, as if it never happened or like we all knew that one was bad. You know, <laughs> are you going to attend the um, SPF trial? I definitely want. I definitely want to see it. I haven't quite figured out uh, how I'm going to write about it, but I, I'm I'm certainly curious. It's like what makes it most interesting for me is that there is a guy in the book who I really liked, who I met. He was one of SBF's lieutenants named Nishad Singh, and he just seemed like the sweetest guy. And like, he almost seemed to me like he didn't know very much about crypto. Like he was so caught up in like his workaholism and like becoming a billionaire that he hadn't even like stopped to think much about what was going on. He has since like pleaded guilty to serious crimes and is going to uh, testify. He's supposed to testify against Sam. Um, and they've known each other since they were kids. So to me, like, I don't know, it's, um, I'm most interested in seeing like this group of friends who now are like going to be on the stand talking about each other. There's a degree to which like a lot of these crimes are both like very, very modern and also like um, timeless, you know, like uh, starting a shadow bank and then um, the shadow bank doesn't actually have all the money it was supposed to. That was like a popular thing to do in the wild West also. Yeah. Like, how much of this do you think is sort of truly unique and technological versus like universal human um, like fraud themes that play out through time and often like touch on sort of novel technological developments? No, I think that a lot of these scams are not are not that new. And I've spent a lot of time writing about about penny stocks, which are similar to me to a lot of like cryptocurrencies where some guy says like, hey, I got this great gold mine, like you, time to invest. And like, he doesn't really have the gold mine. People invest. He sort of does some manipulation to get the stock going up. And then once the stock's high, he dumps his shares and, you know, runs away. And like, I think that explains like a, I don't know. Do you think? I, no, I think that's very accurate. I mean, also like um, organized crime got very involved in the penny stock market as it got larger. And when people see there's like easy money to be made, it sort of attracts other human archetypes that exist through throughout time. That's like one of my favorite periods in Wall Street history. I was not there to report on it, but it's depicted in like one episode of The Sopranos. Uh, they call it their company, their dot-com company, like Webonics, Webistics. Yeah. And like, that's real. Like I've met this, I'm sort of like a fan, like a scam aficionado. So I'll like look up the guy who ran like the real Webistics and be like, you want to get a beer? Like, what are you up to these days? Um, and I'll say that like, these guys like to talk about their jobs. Like, same as me, like, guys, fun for me. Like I'm talking about work. You know, most of my friends are sick of hearing about it. And then, uh, 
it's just, you know, this guy, the Webistics guy also, like his wife is bored about hearing about Webistics and like, <laughs> he's ready to tell me how like he came up with sort of great story and now he's gonna make, you know, five bucks a share from these suckers or whatever, or better if he already did it and, but yeah. Last one. Last one. Last one. So, I mean, you described this as like, I can't, I'm paraphrasing here, but like one of the, the sort of greatest mania, financial manias in human history, basically. And now that you've written about it, do you feel like you will continue to have that, that, that love of scams, that interest in scams, or will everything seem small in comparison to the vast target-rich environment that you've just encountered? Um, no, I've been thinking about that a lot. Like I've actually been considering stories that are totally different and don't have to do with scams. Um, but I'm sure you feel that way. Like you've, uh, after writing like the mastermind, like you're never going to get like a, how do you top a character like, uh, Paul LaRue? Like, cause I really want to go into a story thinking it's going to be my best story ever. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the, the, the saving grace is that there's always new, stranger characters entering these same worlds. And so the question is, are you still willing to live in that world again? Oh yeah, they just need to come up with like cooler scams. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thank you all for coming. Uh, thanks for listening and uh, bye. Hey, thanks for listening to the Long Form Podcast. Two-person credits. Me, Evan. Evan, so fun doing that uh, interview with you. Really enjoyed that, Aaron. And our thanks to Zeke Fox for doing it. Our thanks to Powerhouse in Dumbo for hosting all of us. Uh, thanks to our editor on this episode, uh, Gabriella Saldivia. And our thanks to Megan Valley for doing the show notes. Thanks to everybody over at Vox who help us make this show, which uh, does a live episode once or twice per decade. We'll see you in about 2029. And until then, thanks for listening. Thanks to everyone who came out. And we'll see you next week. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.